You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this special bonus episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for downloading this episode. As we hinted at a week or so ago, today we're going to be talking about horses and also mules and their importance to Civil War armies. And then we'll close out this episode by looking at perhaps the most famous animal of the Civil War, Robert E. Lee's horse, Traveler. When Abraham Lincoln was informed in March 1863 that Confederate partisan rangers had raided in Virginia and made off with a Union Army brigadier general and numerous horses, the president reportedly joked that the loss of the commander was easily remedied, but the horses cost $125 apiece. While Lincoln's remark had more than humorous significance, since victory or defeat in the Civil War was often greatly influenced by the number and quality of horses that could be provided to an army. And so we decided to do this episode on horses, and mules too, because we thought it's worth emphasizing that Civil War armies couldn't have functioned without the large numbers of horses and mules that drew supply wagons, provided mounts for cavalry and for officers, pulled ambulances, and moved artillery pieces. For those of us who love animals, it's heartbreaking to realize that horses and mules were a highly consumable resource in the Civil War. The life expectancy of an artillery horse, for example, was seven and a half months. Like the men who rode or drove them, the animals that accompanied the armies suffered from sickness and fatigue, and during the war, far more horses and mules died of disease or were broken by overwork than were killed by the enemy. In terms of numbers, it's thought that more than twice as many horses as soldiers perished during the Civil War. An estimated 1.5 million horses died during the war, compared with perhaps around 700,000 men. When measured beside the scale of such human tragedy, the severe attrition of the animals that accompanied the armies was considered of but little consequence by most of the soldiers who served during the war. But we don't mean to make it sound like everyone who fought in the Civil War cavalierly wasted the lives of the animals that allowed the armies to move and fight. A Confederate cavalryman, for example, would do his best to practice good horse management especially since the animal he was riding was his own personal property. And many Union cavalrymen and artillerymen also did their best to give their horses proper care and attention. Well, there, there were three basic components to good horse management. They were one, forage, two, water, and three, grooming. As far as forage, which each day usually was supposed to consist of 12 pounds of oats, barley, or corn, and 14 pounds of hay for each animal, well, supply depots couldn't provide forage in the astounding amounts needed over long stretches of time. So while armies were on campaign, they mostly depended on what could be squeezed from the countryside in which they were operating. And so in time, large areas were picked clean of forage, 
causing particularly severe shortages of grain and corn. Horses on campaign were frequently on short rations, supplemented by grazing on grass, which was not a proper alternative to grain. And artillery horses, unlike cavalry, could seldom actually indulge in grazing since on the march they were hitched to cannon or caissons. It wasn't unknown for artillerymen to be sent on grass-cutting forays to feed the battery's horses. A Confederate lieutenant colonel who commanded an artillery battalion at Gettysburg made this report after the retreat from Pennsylvania. Quote, I regret to state that owing to the jaded condition of the horses, which had been but scantily supplied with forage since July 1st, during all of which time they had not received a single feed of corn, I was forced to abandon two rifled pieces. The losses which my battalion has incurred during the recent campaign are especially heavy in horses, those now remaining being for the present almost totally unserviceable. End quote. The second component of good horse management, water, was a commodity that had to be found for all horses every day, the minimum amount being four gallons. The problem became acute at the end of a day's march when the nearest stream or well could be a considerable distance away. And then the third component to good horse care was grooming. This included normal brushing and washing away mud or dust, but also meant particular attention to shoeing, care with the fitting of harness or saddle, the use of a folded blanket under the saddle to prevent back sores, and a soft leather pad under the collar of artillery horses to relieve tenderness. But even when the men wished to practice good horse management, it was often the case, especially while on campaign, that operational pressures meant the animals simply did not receive the care and attention they required. The memoirs of Isaac Norville Baker, who rode with Company F of the 18th Virginia Cavalry, recorded in graphic detail what happened during the wretched retreat from Gettysburg back down to the Potomac River, when the Confederate cavalry horses didn't receive the care they needed. Quote, We fed our horses on sheaf wheat, and the beards made our horses' tongues sore and ulcerated. Our regiment was about the last to cross the river. We went into camp about a mile or so south of the river with orders to unsaddle our horses. Our horses' backs were raw with ulcers one or two inches deep and full of maggots. The green flies had put up a big job on us, our blankets were full of maggots and rotten. Our saddles had from a pint to a quarter of maggots in them, and we had to run them out with hot water and soap. And it was months before the horses' backs were cured. End quote. So that's just to illustrate that while good horse management, that is the constant care and attention to feeding, watering, grooming, shoeing, and resting, well, good horse management ought to have been the first priority of every cavalryman or artilleryman but some men either didn't understand or care about such things, and other men did care about those things, but sometimes in the midst of fighting the war, it just wasn't possible to properly care for the animals. And it should also be mentioned that the absence of a trained and organized veterinary corps severely hampered both armies. A horse for military service is as much a military supply as a barrel of gunpowder or a rifle. Thus said Union Quartermaster General 
Montgomery C. Meigs in April 1862 when trying to persuade the Secretary of War to give him authority to seize horses in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. During the Civil War, areas of conflict were quickly stripped of horses as the animals were requisitioned, commandeered, or stolen. Private citizens went to ingenious lengths to hide their horses from the armies. One animal was found tied to the bedpost in a lady's bedroom. To capture enemy horses was a crucial task of any cavalry or foraging expedition, and the Union armies captured many more than the Confederates, since for most of the war, campaigning was in southern territory. The number of horses an army needed to move and fight was staggering. Already in September 1861, the Army of the Potomac needed 20,000 saddle horses and another 20,000 draft horses just to do its daily business. By the middle of 1862, the number of animals needed by Union armies was 1,500 new horses a week, and two years later, in 1864, the demand had swollen to 500 horses a day, with the government shelling out $170 per animal. And just as a footnote, but by the end of 1864, good horses in the Confederacy cost from $600 up to $2,500, prices well beyond the means of most Southern cavalrymen. Back in the cavalry episode, we mentioned that as the war progressed, finding suitable mounts for Southern cavalry became a real challenge for the Confederacy. But as the war went on, supplying the immense numbers of horses needed by the Union armies also became a problem for the North. An estimated 650,000 horses were purchased for Union armies during the war, with another 75,000 confiscated throughout conquered Southern Territory. The cost of horse flesh to the federal treasury totaled a whopping $95 million. The federal government obtained horses in the same fashion as all other supplies destined for the armies, that is, by means of public announcements soliciting bids. And since they were enormously lucrative, horse contracts became practically synonymous with fraud. Substantial progress in cutting that fraud wasn't made until 1864, when Brigadier General James Harrison Wilson, head of the Cavalry Bureau, backed by the authority of the Secretary of War, fined and imprisoned dishonest contractors. Horses used by both armies could be roughly divided into draft and saddle animals. Draft horses pulled cannon, caissons, and some wagons, while saddle horses carried riders. In the artillery, half the horses performed both functions, since the left-hand horse of each pair pulling guns or caissons carried a driver. At the start of the war in 1861, it's estimated that the northern states held around 3.5 million horses, with only 1.7 million being in the Confederate states. The border states of Kentucky and Missouri had another 800,000. However, the horse was not the only draft animal available to the armies. Considerable use was made of mules. But while the North had a preponderance of horses, the reverse was true of mules, with the South holding some 800,000, the North 100,000, and the two border states 200,000. One of the reasons the loss of most of Tennessee in 1862 was a major blow to the Confederacy was because it deprived the Confederacy of its main source of mules. Mules were strong, sure-footed, and excellent load carriers or pullers. They were not as susceptible to suffering from neglect, disease, hard usage, or bad feed. They were not picky eaters. 
They could travel over rough terrain that would lame a horse. So in some important aspects, mules were better than horses, but not in one regard. They were useless for drawing guns or caissons since they became demented under fire. In battle, horses tended to be steady under fire. They might kick, buck, or rear, but mules went mad. They would kick and roll around on the ground, entangling harnesses and causing pandemonium. At times, they would be used to carry mountain howitzers due to their sure-footedness and the fact that the howitzers could be dismantled into individual loads. At the Battle of Port Republic in June 1862, a Confederate colonel had a battery of mountain howitzers carried by mules, and he described what happened when shells burst overhead as his unit took shelter in a gully. Quote, The mules became frantic. They kicked, plunged, and squealed. It was impossible to quiet them, and it took three or four men to hold one mule from breaking away. Each mule had about 300 pounds weight on him, so securely fastened that the load could not be dislodged by any of his capers. Several of them lay down and tried to wallow their loads off. The men, men held these down, so that suggested the idea of throwing them all to the ground and holding them there. End quote. And so for that reason, mules, although they numbered almost half the draft animals in Civil War armies, mules were kept out of the line of fire whenever possible, and were almost universally used for drawing the wagons of the supply and ammunition trains. And no one knows for certain just how many mules were pressed into military service during the war. Northern armies used as many as 450,000, and Confederate forces probably that many or more. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We want to use this last part of the show to talk about Robert E. Lee's favorite horse, Traveler. Traveler is arguably the Civil War's most famous horse, and although he wasn't the only horse Robert E. Lee rode during the war, Traveler was the Confederate general's favorite mount. And in history and memory, the two are inseparable. The Iron Gray Horse was born in 1857 in Greenbrier County, now in West Virginia. His sire was Gray Eagle, a 16-hand gray racehorse that was famous for running in a $20,000 stake race in Louisville, Kentucky in 1839. Gray Eagle sired numerous successful racehorses and saddle horses, and James W. Johnston purchased a mare named Flora that had been bred to Gray Eagle and had her shipped to his home in Greenbrier County in western Virginia, where the colt was born in 1857. Johnston named the colt Jeff Davis 
after the Mississippi senator who had gained fame during the Mexican War. Robert E. Lee first saw Traveler in the fall of 1861 while he was serving in western Virginia. Lee was apparently quite taken with the horse even then, appreciating its charm, grace, and good looks, and in jest referred to the animal as my colt. Traveler was then owned by another Confederate officer, Captain Joseph M. Brown, a quartermaster in the 3rd Virginia Infantry. Brown had purchased the horse for military service from a fellow officer who was the son of the original owner. Captain Brown changed the animal's name from Jeff Davis to Greenbrier. The captain's brother, Major Thomas L. Brown, recalled how Joseph enjoyed prancing about on his top-quality steed. The major praised the horse for needing, quote, neither whip nor spur, and would walk his five or six miles an hour over the rough mountain roads of western Virginia with his rider sitting firmly in the saddle and holding him in check by a tight rein. Such vim and eagerness did he manifest to go right ahead so soon as he was mounted. End quote. Before he had a chance to try to purchase the horse from Captain Brown, Robert E. Lee was sent south to take charge of the Confederacy's coastal defenses. But as fate would have it, the 3rd Virginia shortly thereafter was transferred to South Carolina. And so Lee once again ran across Brown riding the beautiful iron gray horse, and Lee inquired about the well-being of his colt. Brown, aware that Lee was partial to the horse, and certainly not unconscious of their differences in rank, offered Greenbrier to Lee as a gift. The general declined, but offered to buy the animal. Brown wrote to his brother, who was home on sick leave, asking for his advice. The response was, quote, If he will not accept it, then sell it to him at what it costs, end quote. Well, Brown had paid $175 for Greenbrier, but in February 1862, Lee gave him an extra $15 because of the, of the depreciation of Confederate money. After acquiring his colt, Lee changed Greenbrier's name for the last time, calling him Traveler, using the double L spelling in the British style. Lee apparently called his new horse Traveler because of the animal's ability to walk at a fast pace. But the general's youngest son, Robert E. Lee Jr., left an account that indicates such a pace didn't suit all riders. After gaining a promotion late in 1862 and having need to travel to Fredericksburg to his new posting, Robert Jr. stopped by his father's headquarters along the way. The general lent Traveler to his son for the 30-mile journey, and the young Lee recounted the trip in his 1904 book, Recollections and Letters of General Robert E. Lee. Quote, The general had the strongest affection for Traveler, which he showed on all occasions, and his allowing me to ride him on this long march was a great compliment. Possibly he wanted to give me a good hammering before he turned me over to the cavalry. During my soldier life so far, I had been on foot, having backed nothing more lively than a tired artillery horse, so I mounted with some misgivings, though I was proud of my steed. My misgivings were fully realized, for Traveler would not walk a step. He took a short, high trot and kept it up to Fredericksburg some thirty miles. Though young, strong, and tough, I was glad when the journey ended. I think I am safe in saying that I could have walked the distance with much less discomfort and fatigue." End quote. Despite the strong association Robert E. Lee shares with Traveler, the general did not actually begin to ride him regularly until after the spring 1862 Peninsula Campaign. But from that point on, he was Lee's most used mount, even after Second Manassas, where Lee was at the front reconnoitering when he dismounted 
and while he was holding Traveler by the bridle, the horse was startled by some movement and plunged, pulling Lee down on a stump. Lee broke bones in both of his hands, a painful and frustrating accident, especially since it meant the general couldn't hold a horse's reins in his wounded hands, and so he went through most of the rest of that campaign riding in an ambulance wagon. Another dramatic incident occurred in the wilderness in May of 1864, when Lee looked as if he were going to personally lead a counterattack, but some of Longstreet's Texans surrounded Traveler and shouted, Lee to the rear! Lee to the rear! Several of the Texans are reported to have gently taken Traveler's bridle and turned him around, starting Lee back toward safety. That day in the wilderness, Traveler carried Lee until well after midnight, and when they finally returned to camp, Lee dismounted, and overcome with exhaustion, he threw his arms around Traveler's neck to hold himself up. After the war, Traveler accompanied Lee when Lee took the post of president of Washington College in Lexington, Virginia. Traveler was allowed to graze the campus, although he lost numerous hairs from his mane and tail as admirers plucked them for souvenirs. Lee spent his final years as president of the college, and during that time one of his most cherished pastimes was taking a ride on Traveler. Robert E. Lee died there in Lexington on October 12, 1870. Traveler walked behind the hearse at Lee's funeral and continued to be well cared for up until his death the following summer. Traveler was put down in June 1871 after stepping on a rusty nail and developing lockjaw. Traveler was initially buried behind the college's main building, but in 1907 his bones were put on display in what is now Robinson Hall at Washington and Lee University. In 1929, the bones were placed in the Lee Chapel basement, where they stood for many years, slowly deteriorating. Finally, in 1971, Traveler's remains were buried in front of the Lee Chapel, only a few feet away from the Lee family crypt where his master's body lies. Before Lee's death, he dictated a letter to his daughter Agnes for an artist who wished to depict the old man's beloved horse. Lee said, If I were an artist like you... I would draw a true picture of Traveler, representing his fine proportions, muscular frame, deep chest and short back, strong haunches, flat legs, small head, broad forehead, delicate ears, quick eye, small feet, and black mane and tail. Such a picture would inspire a poet, whose genius would then depict his worth and describe his endurance of toil, hunger, thirst, heat and cold, and the dangers and sufferings through which he passed. But I am no artist. I can only say he was Confederate Gray. I purchased him in the mountains of Virginia in the autumn of 1861, and he has been my patient follower ever since, to Georgia, the Carolinas, and back to Virginia. He carried me through the Seven Days Battle around Richmond, the Second Manassas, at Sharpsburg, Fredericksburg, the last day at Chancellorsville, to Pennsylvania at Gettysburg, and back to the Rappahannock. From the commencement of the campaign in 1864 at Orange till its close around Petersburg, the saddle was scarcely off his back as he passed through the fire of the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Cold Harbor, and across the James River. He was almost in daily requisition in the winter of 1864-65, on the long line of defenses from Chickahominy, north of Richmond, to Hatcher's Run, south of the Appomattox. 
In the campaign of 1865, he bore me from Petersburg to the final days at Appomattox Courthouse. You must know the comfort he is to me in my present retirement. You can, I am sure, from what I have said, paint his portrait. R. E. Lee That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And we actually pulled this episode together from a number of different sources. And so since we don't have a horse and mule specific book recommendation for you, we'll just use this as an opportunity to recommend another general history of the Civil War uh, like we do from time to time. And so our book recommendation this time is The Great Struggle, America's Civil War by Stephen E. Woodworth. And this book is a very accessible, wide-ranging history, not just of the war itself, but also the long story of the road that led to civil war, and then he also goes through Reconstruction. So that's This Great Struggle, America's Civil War, by Stephen E. Woodworth. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations going right back to episode number one at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And then as we close, we just wanted to say thank you to all of you listening to the podcast. Uh, Today is the one-year anniversary of the podcast launch, and we really can't tell you how surprised we are at how it's really taken off, and especially once we hit Fort Sumter. Uh, Things started off a bit slow, and since I'm not sure a lot of people were terribly interested in the slow walk we were taking up to the start of the war, but we felt that covering that background was very important, and so we stuck with it. Uh, But here we are a year later, finally, almost, getting to the first major battle of the war. And we can't begin to tell you how much we appreciate all of y'all who have taken the time to support and encourage us over this past year. It means more than you know. Well, before things get too emotional, we better wrap things up. So we'll say thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.